Hey guys, I'm Dan Cooper, the youth pastor here at Jubilee and wanted to welcome you to Jubilee Online. We're currently in a series called At The Movies in which our teaching team takes movies and puts a biblical spin on it. It's really awesome and super fun and hope you guys can join us. And if you are wanting to get involved and get connected, there are three ways you can give. Through our website at jfc.org give, through our mobile app, or through text to give. I hope you guys have a great weekend and an amazing summer. If you're like, I don't get that, neither do we. We do not. It has something to do with a movie, and those guys, what makes it funny is they're out in Highlands Ranch doing those things in front of everybody, and I'm sure people are like, what is this? And I don't know. Um, hey, you will need a pen or a pencil, or you can use the online version of the U-Notes for the message today. And if you learn best by just listening, that's great too. Uh, if you're a visiting family this weekend, and in particular, uh, we have you here and you're a father, want to welcome you. I uh, want you to know that we honor you and that today, uh, truly, uh, we want to take a moment and go against what our culture does with most fathers, and that's present them as well-meaning but kind of bumbling idiots. And the truth of the matter is we don't see fathers that way. We think you have one of the highest jobs that's ever been given to a human, right up there with a mom. How about that? Right there. So we're glad that you're here this weekend, and I think that you'll find the message is a blessing uh, to you. Um, before I jump into it, I want to share something with you that I'm, I'm just finding really kind of amazing. And um, sometimes I'm not always like on top of sharing. Uh, there's just so much that, uh, that happens to, to share. But this is one I've kind of along the way shared with you. So maybe a month ago, maybe five weeks ago, somewhere in that time frame, I taught a message. Um, and it was just about being a good steward with what God's given you. And I talked about uh, even with your money. Uh, letting, letting the Lord lead you and direct you and, and just show you how to operate in that thing. And I used a scripture from Malachi that tells us, it's the only place in the Bible that tells us to test the Lord and to see whether or not God will do what he said he would do. And it's in the context of giving. And it just says uh, this, uh, test me and see that I won't open the windows of heaven and pour out a blessing for you when you do with your money what God tells you to do. And one of the things that I said we have the chance to do is to make a difference in other people's lives. And I showed a, um, just a quick video uh, of Mozambique, Africa. And we have some missionaries there, Jeff and Nikki Reitz. And what Mozambique has gone through earlier this year, they've had two back-to-back -back, uh, Katrina-level storms that just have decimated that part of the world. Now think of New Orleans when New Orleans had Katrina. So you're in the first world, the wealthiest nation on the face of the earth, I'm from New Orleans originally, and this is what I can tell you. Even all these years later, New Orleans is still yet to fully recover, and we live in the first world. Imagine the third world, 
getting hit by Katrina once, twice in 30 days, and them trying to recover. It is, it, it's a bad deal. Now, the cities are receiving money from different places, but the country and the bush, it's really difficult. And our missionaries in particular, that's where they minister. So we asked, how could we help? And they said, what we, what we really need are relief kits. And the relief kits contained a water purifier, mosquito netting. Uh, you know, what we can't relate to is we think of m mosquito bites are terrible. Who likes them? But in that part of the world, more people will die because of the mosquitoes now than they did because of the flooding. Malaria still runs rampant. Mosquito-borne diseases in the third world are still, they're horrible. Uh, it, some of it had just plastic visqueen in it to give them a roof over their head. They've lost their houses. And so what can we do that's just practical? What can we do to help other families? And so that's how I related it. Like if you're a family of four or five, could you buy one of these relief kits for a family of four or five? And I knew our church would respond well because it's a very generous church, but I didn't know how well. So I think two weeks after that had happened, I stood up here and I shared that you had given $36,000, a tremendous amount of money. That was great. I thought that was kind of like the apex of it. Ah, let me, <laughs> let me come back. Since then, you've given $62,482. That's, uh, yeah, thank the Lord for that. If you like to do the math and want to know where that equates, that's almost 1,000 kits. Uh, it's almost 4,000 people that have been helped, and obviously it's still coming in. All of the money that you give towards that goes to the relief effort there in Mozambique. And I just want to say thank you uh, for that. I just believe that it's awesome. With that, what I asked people to do in that challenge, I said, let's just, if you're not a giver or you're not a regular giver, test the Lord. Do it for 90 days, and we'll do this, even if it sounds ludicrous. For the next 90 days, just make it a part of your budget. Make it a part of your giving. Test the Lord. At the end of the 90 days, if you say, hey, this didn't work, God did not bless me, we'll give the money back to you. And then maybe that sounds crazy for a church to do that, but I just think man, when God says test me, either we take that to be true or we don't, right? Either we, we're playing or we're, we're not. And so I, I had told Todd, hey, pay attention to any new giving and make sure and mark it down, keep it separate. And if someone wants it back, we'll give it back if they don't feel like God is blessing them. But at the same time, I also said, if you're going to do this, send your stories in as God begins to bless you because I knew we'd get them. And sure enough, I've received several. Uh, here's one that I want to read to you real quickly because I think it encourages and I think that it backs up when God says, test me and see if you can see it working, then you should tell people about it. So this comes from a family, goes to our church. There's nothing about this family that's out of the ordinary. They live the day-to-day -day life. They're trying to figure out how to make it. I will summarize the story and then read one paragraph. Uh, in the story, they were here that weekend, husband and wife. They have children. They heard me talk about Mozambique. They heard me talk about what to do with their giving. They heard me talk about being faithful and testing God. And uh, in the meeting uh, that weekend, uh, the husband just simply thinks to himself, hey, God, do you want us to be involved with this? And here's what was going on in their life and what he writes uh, in his, his letter. Uh, they needed to get a new car, but they had been saving up the money for it. And they were going to wait one extra month. The payment for the car was going to be $750. They wanted to wait one more month, put one more payment in the bank so that they had that cushion in there. And while they were sitting here and heard me talk about it, he hears the Lord say, give $750. And so he, he bargains back with God, I'll give $500. How's that right there? I'm doing, hey, I, let me keep at least 250 of it. I mean, it's just good stewardship, right? And I'll give 500. And he said, all I heard was crickets for the rest of the meeting. I couldn't, I couldn't hear a thing. So they went out to lunch after it was over on a Saturday or dinner, excuse me, uh, went out to dinner. Uh, they're sitting there at the table. And his wife says, hey, did God tell you anything about us helping 
uh, and, and, and being a part of that project in Mozambique. And he said, well, as a matter of fact, God did, and uh, God said 750, but I told him 500. And he's thinking his wife will go, oh, that's great. And she goes, we need to give the 750. And so, settles the issue, they go home, and now I'll read uh, his letter. After we finish our meal, we go home, and we get the mail. In the mail, we have a letter from our mortgage company. Of course, I thought, what now? We open the letter and have an escrow surplus refund in the amount of, wait for it, Pastor, $750.34. I'm still, I'm still quoting, God is so good. All we can say is that God did this all in a matter of about four hours on a Saturday night. So what is he going to do in the next 90 days? I have no idea, but we're so excited. We look at the number of families in our church and what God has planned with the challenge you set before us all. It's always exciting when one listens to God and is obedient and then to wait in anticipation to see how God moves. We are praying for abundant blessings, not only in this season, but for extended seasons to flow into Jubilee, as we know that God has great plans for you and for our church. They say a couple of more nice things to me personally, and then it's signed anonymously for this reason. They put, we don't want it to be about us. We want it to be about the kingdom. Love that right there. The only reason I'm sharing it is I think it's encouraging when it's not just me saying it, but you can see people who sit right next to you saying it. So if you've got a story of God doing something in your life, I would love to get them. I can't read all of them, but there'll be particular ones I'd love to pick out and then uh, share it with the congregation because I think a testimony like that is an encouragement to people. Okay, let's go ahead and we'll jump into this message. Here's what we're doing and... um, in the direction that we're going. For our summer series, we realize starting from Memorial Day through Labor Day that uh, it's, it's normal for people to travel. You're going to have vacation, many of you, uh, a family reunion, and some kind of a work gathering, something over the weekend. You may just wake up and look at the weekend and go, hey, finally, we got nice weather. Uh, let's stay home. And um, whatever it's going to be, I know that there's going to be some in and out during the summertime. It's normal. The pastors do it. We expect it. So how can we then work with what we have and not curse what is? Does that make sense? So how can we work with it? So we thought if we do a regular series where we're building each week on it, if someone makes it for the first message in a series but doesn't make it back until the third, fourth, or fifth message, it's going to be really hard to connect dots. So what if we do messages that stand alone? You could just come in, you hear that one, you could come back two weeks later and catch that one, and they make sense to you, right? So how could we do that? So we chose a series that we had done in the past called At the Movies, and here's the theme behind it. We simply are, uh, each one who is on the teaching team that's teaching that weekend is picking a movie, just a little part of it, to help them make the point that they want to make in their message. So here's what I chose for Father's Day, Saving Private Ryan. Woohoo! Yeah, why? Because I'm a man. <laughs> By the way, if you're like, are you recommending that we go home and watch Saving Private Ryan? Well, as your pastor, no. But as John, you bet I am, man. <laughs> Don't let your kids watch it. It's an authentic portrayal of what war is like. Uh, but I think looking at that greatest generation and understanding the sacrifice that was made so that we can sit here in freedom today is always something that we should uphold and we should make up a worthy thing. So here's, here's the clip that I, and, and here's what I'm teaching on today, the way of a godly man. Not the way of a good man, but the way of a godly man. Okay, so you're in the right place this morning, but here's what I want to use to help me with this. There's a part in the movie, and if you haven't seen it, I won't do a spoiler, but if you have seen it, you might remember this. At the end of the movie, he morphs from being a young man to an old man all of a sudden. He's standing at Normandy, 
and the theme of the movie simply was this, and it's based on something that actually happened. There was a family who four sons had gone off to serve in World War II. And three of the sons were killed. And when the War Department realized it, they decided we need to rescue the fourth one and get him home before that family receives another telegram for a dead son. So Saving Private Ryan is the mission that they went on to find him and to save him. Now, they took Hollywood license with it. It wasn't exactly that way in real life, but they did a good job with it. And in particular, at the end of it, it cost the men who went to save Ryan, it cost them their lives in trying to get him back. So he morphs from a young man in World War II to an old man standing in Normandy, France. Uh, by the way, it just works out really good, doesn't it, as far as uh, anniversary? And he's in Normandy, France, looking at the grave. Tom Hanks' character was the one that John Miller went to save him. And he's asking the question, I hope I've lived a life worthy of the sacrifice that you gave so that I could live. And then his wife walks over, and he asks her a question. And I think it's a question that every man, but in particular fathers, might want to ask because it's an important question. So watch this. It's a powerful portrayal, and you know, when Hollywood gets it right, they really get it right. And in that, I think the two things that I picked to show that were this. Uh, one, I think that the fingerprint of God in a man's life, now it's in women too, don't misunderstand me, but I think the difference is that in a man's life, there's this thing inside them that they want to know that my life mattered, that it counted and that it made a difference. And I'm not saying that women don't feel that, but men in particular have this thing on them where they want to know for the people that are close to them and the people that they're living for, taking care of, they want to know that those people admire them. Men feel love and receive it in a different way, and it's through admiration and through feeling respected. The reason that I picked this particular clip right here is because I think that one of the most important questions that you can ask and get an answer to as a man is to ask whether or not I'm living a life that's worthy and I'm living a life that counts and I'm living a life that matters. But this is what I want you to grasp real quickly. The time to ask that question is not at the end of your life because at the end you can't turn around and do anything about it. It is what it is. You've created a life at that point and it's too late to back up from it. We'd like to believe that there's always more time, but the truth of the matter is you can get to a point where there's simply not enough time to change it. The time to ask yourself that question is when you're 25, when you're 35, when you're 45 and you're 55 and you're 65 and there's still time to do something about your life. That's the time to ask that question. It's a serious question. And it's one that's worth pondering, worth asking, and here's the truth of the matter. And I'm not exactly sure what the answer was, because they don't tell us what his life was like after World War II. But I'm wondering, did his wife tell him the truth, or did she lie to him at the end? Because if it was too late, what would she say to him? The time to ask that question is not when you're at the end of your life. It's when you're at the beginning or the middle of it, so that there's still time to do something about it. So that's where the message goes today. I want to talk, the way, talk about the way of a godly man, what it looks like, what it means. And I'm going to use a little bit of my own life, not because I think, quite honestly, that I'm some perfect example. I think that I've been here long enough, and if you go to church here, you know that what I try to portray is not perfection, it's honesty. It's authenticity. It's real. I don't try to portray myself as something that I'm not. 
I learned this a long time ago. If you want to impress people, tell them about where you succeed. But if you want to impact them, tell them where you struggle. Because people will admire success, but they relate to struggle, yes or no. Because we find ourselves all in the same boat, that we're all trying to do good, and we're all trying to be better, and we're all trying to live a life that's worthwhile. But as a godly man, it's not about just living a good life. It's living a life where you worship God first and foremost, and you're living out what he calls you to do. Joshua 24, 15. Let me tell you what this is real quickly. It's a scripture that you've probably heard before. Let me give you the context. Joshua was the protege of Moses. Moses led the children of Israel out of Egypt through the desert for 40 years. And it was his destiny to take them to the promised land that God had given to them. But before he could do that, Moses, as the leader of Israel, blew it in front of them. And it cost him his capacity to lead. God told Moses, you'll go to heaven, but you won't get to take them into the promised land. And it's going to be Joshua, Joshua, your successor. Joshua, on his inauguration day, the day that he makes his first speech to Israel, the day that he's about to lead them across the River Jordan into the promised land, has to do something that elevates him in the eyes of the people. And so as he's talking to them about what his leadership's going to be like, it's his inauguration speech, for lack of a better word. He has a famous part of it that gets quoted all the time, but out of context. So he makes this statement to Israel about what his leadership's going to look like, and he says this right here. As for me and my house, me and my family, we will what? Serve. Serve the Lord. So what he's saying is it doesn't matter what the people on the other side of that river do in that culture. We are not going to become like them. It doesn't really matter what any of you do either. If you're not going to serve the Lord, you get to decide that. But as for me and my house, the way that I'm going to lead, we're going to serve the Lord. And I think that making that statement is like putting a mile marker in the ground, a stake over your life, a decision that everybody can see, that it doesn't matter what happens, this is what we're going to do. And we may struggle in that, and we may go up and down in that, and we may have our own problems in that, but this is going to be the thing that marks our life. So that at the end, when we look back and I ask the question, was I a godly man? It can be said, yes, you were a godly man. So let me give you three things that I think help to make those things happen. These are the things that when you ask, am I going in that direction, you want to be able to say. Now, by the way, they're not going to be the big things that you think. They're probably a little more subtle, but maybe that's what makes them more realistic. Here's the first one. A godly man is a man who's always authentic. Always authentic. What does it mean to be authentic? What does it mean to be real? What does it mean to be transparent? You know, so many times we portray, and men in particular, some type of a picture to other people that is so unrealistic. We got it together. We're the master of the courtroom, the boardroom, the emergency room, the classroom. But when it comes to spiritual things, we are freaked out by them. Uh, we'll take on alpha personalities and tame them like lions. But when it comes to grabbing our wife's hand and praying out loud, ooh, I don't know. Then the pastor stands up and challenges us in a message to be better spiritual leaders, authentic men who can show vulnerability to our family. And we just don't know how to do that. What does it mean to be authentic? When I think of how I've been an authentic father, here's the things that come to my mind. They're not the ones that you probably think about. Daniel, when he stood up here just now, uh, we didn't plan this. We didn't. We didn't say, hey, this will look really good in front of all of our people. See, that's not authentic. Right. When your son gives you something that money can't buy, that's authentic. 
for him to turn and to look at me and to say, hey, I want to say something to my dad on Father's Day. And he mentioned a lot of things that you probably heard, but one that might have skipped over you. He said, when I tore up my knee. What did that mean? Both of my twins, my youngest two, were athletes. They were good athletes. Daniel uh, was the fullback on the team. Can you tell how he's built? And uh, ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, uh, he practiced but he didn't get to start. From time to time, he'd get in. And, but by the time he was a senior, he had earned the right to start. And he was having a great year. Played for Thunder Ridge. And in the fourth game of the year, fifth game, somewhere in there, there's an All-American, Connor Medbury, if you know the name. He went to Loveland High School. He was an All-American wrestler, 250-plus wrestler. Uh, he played the linebacker on the other side. Daniel got the ball and came through the hole. Uh, real low scooting, and the biggest hand that I ever saw in my life reached out and grabbed him by the shoulder pad and twisted him. His foot stuck because of his cleat, and it twisted, and it ripped his knee out in the fifth game of the year. You know, as a parent, I ran down out of the stands to the fence. Chris behind me, we looked through the fence. They won't let you go on the field, and it took forever. Was he okay? Was he knocked out? And they got him all picked up and on a stretcher, and I went down to the end of the field, and I met him, and we went back in the locker room, and the doctor was back there, and uh, looked at his knee, and gave us the report right then that you need to take him over to the hospital. He's torn his knee up. We didn't know how bad at the time, but we knew it was bad. And when I got him home, and in the garage, Chris had gone inside. You know, the 18-year-old boy leans his head on his father's shoulder when I'm trying to get him out of the car and just begins to weep. And I wanted to tell him, oh, it's, it's going to be okay. But authentic was, son, I don't know what's going to happen after today, but your life is going to change. And it's not going to go the direction you thought it was going to go. You're not going to play sports. It was a young man's dream, right? But his hopes of going to college and then doing something with it after college, I, I saw it changing. And we just wept together in that garage. And the funniest thing happened. It didn't happen overnight, and it didn't happen in two months. And there was some wandering in the desert, for sure, from that point till it happened. But God used that thing to change the direction of my son's life to where he called him into ministry. And now he stands on a platform. And I'm not sure, listen to this, that without a torn up knee, he would stand here today in front of you. And have changed the direction of his life. And the only thing I'm saying is this. God did not cause him to blow his knee out. But God can use what's evil to do good in our lives. And the most authentic thing that you can do as a parent. Is not to tell your children something that's not true. Not to make them believe that hey this is all going to go away. But it's how to find God in the middle of tragedy. That's authentic. I watched it with my son David. He made it through high school unscathed. Played in college at Butler in Indianapolis, and worked so hard to play. He was on the opposite side of the field defensively in the safety and cornerback position. Uh, he was a good little cornerback. To play in college, you have to be. Uh, in his senior year, when he finally got the chance to start, in a practice right before the start of the game, he stepped in a hole and tore his knee up. How we flew to Indianapolis for the surgery and... It was so hard. He worked so hard to rehab and to rehab. He redshirted so that he could come back that fifth year and was able to, to play for the team in his fifth year. But it changed the direction of his life too. 
and just to be able to be moms and dads who are authentic to guide your children through some of the hard things in life. Uh, later on, for us, it was miscarriages. And it was heartbreak. And it was marriages that didn't work out. For those who go here, do you hear me? I've been authentic and real as I've stood on this platform. I've not hidden those things from our church. And I've not made our family to be something that's not real. If you want to impress people, tell them how successful you are. But if you want to impact them, tell them how you struggle and how you get up after you fall. That's what you do. How do you lead spiritually when everything's not going the way you want it to go? How do you get back up the next day and how do you keep trying? That's authentic. Men can put up that front where everything's good and they talk a good game, but man, when the chips are down spiritually, what do you do? That's authentic. That's what counts and that's what matters. You know, the most important thing that you can be authentic in, listen to me, be authentic in how to love Jesus. Not how to make a lot of money and not how to travel all over the world and not even how to find the right woman. How to love Jesus. It can be the most intimidating thing for a man, but it's the most important one. I've done this now almost 35 years, and I've seen something through my time in ministry as a youth pastor, an associate pastor, a senior pastor. I've seen it with my friends that I have in church, and I've seen it with strangers that I've just been able to observe their life. And there's only one of two people when it comes to being this authentic lover of Jesus. It's either been in your life synthesized where you really love him and it's really a part of who you are so that when you need to show people how to love Jesus, it's real, or all you do is regurgitate a few sayings that you heard someone say or you read in a book. But people know whether or not it's really real in your life, and your family in particular does. Want to be authentic? Learn to be an authentic lover of Christ because that's the thing that will be remembered when it's all said and done. Let me give you the second one. The way of a godly man, the way of a godly father, the way at the end of your life to look back and ask, did I do it the right way and to get the right answer? How about this one? Learn to be more present today, to be intentional, to be on purpose, and to be deliberate. Listen to me real quickly. I made a decision every day when I would leave the office and I would drive home and I would get in my driveway and here was my decision. God, I'm very tired. God, I've given out and talked to everybody all day long. And God, I've listened to everybody's problems. So here's my right. I want to walk in the house. I want my wife to massage my shoulders. I want my children to smile at me but not talk to me. I want to go upstairs. I want to get on the couch. I want to watch my program. And I want to be left alone for several hours. God, that's what I deserve. Is that authentic? Here was the real prayer. God, I'm about to walk into the situation that's going to mean more 20 years from now than the one I was at today. So help me right now because I'm really tired. Help me to give myself beyond my body. Help me to give my mind and give my spirit and give my essence because when we really love people, we don't love them with just our presence. We love them with everything about us, yes or no? We love them with everything. And I know here's what's going to happen when I walk in the door. Guaranteed. Amy's have written a 30-minute play that she's going to have every kid performing in and she's going to say, Dad! Come down to the basement and watch our play. And the first time it was cute, but the 700th time, Jesus, help me. And it's always going to go the same. 
She's going to have practiced and practiced and practiced. And as soon as they get down there, all the little ones are going to misbehave. And she's going to yell, stop it, stop it, that's it, I'm not doing it, and walk out of the room. <laughs> Somewhere in the middle of it, my three sons are going to wander off and play. And then my two girls are going to say, Dad, we're going to dance. Watch us dance. Listen. You know, when we look back over our lives, listen to this and tell me if it's not true. We only remember those precious parts and we forget the long part. We, we just extract that good thing and we forget the long season that it was. So I don't want to go back and do my life over. I like the place that I'm at right now. But if I could go back and watch one more play, I'd suck every moment from it so that it would synthesize into my life. And if I could go back and watch one more dance... Look at me. I'd give my life to watch one more dance because the Lord told me one time when I was watching them, you're the man in their life, and if you watch right now, they won't need a man later to watch them dance the wrong way. You get to decide. We think the big thing will come our way, and as long as I'm ready for the big thing, but let me tell you how you do the big thing. You do the little thing every day, and it becomes the big thing someday. Change never happens in one day. It happens daily along the way. To be present, to be on purpose, to be deliberate. <laughs> there was a girl who was 16 in a Sunday school class that I walked into. Gosh, she was so beautiful. And she paid attention to me. <laughs> and as we went through school, she picked me. And I felt so fortunate and so lucky, and I married that girl. And 40 years later, I'm still pursuing that beauty. When I wake up in the morning, do you know what I tell her? I call her beauty. You know what she says to me? Hey, handsome. <laughs> we can look in the mirror. We see. <laughs> but to each other. I'm still 17 to her, and she's still 16 to me. And I still love her, and I still pursue her, and I still date her, and I still give myself to the moment that I'm in with her. Because I don't want that to be fake when I stand in front of you. And at the time, I wasn't making a decision so that it would be real when I stood here. I was making a decision so that my children could look and say, that's what it's like. I didn't want them to have the life that I had. To make that decision to be present, and to be on purpose, and to be intentional, it's so hard. You're so tired, and you're so drawn out with all the different things that are going on, but to be more present. My boys, when they got older, every time I walked in the door, they'd say, come in the backyard, and let's play 500. If you don't know what 500 is, you throw the ball in the air, and the two twins were so competitive with each other, and the first one to get to 500 points wins. They would go by one point. <laughs> we would play 500 for hours, and the sun would go down, and it would be dark, and they would scream, we're tied, we're tied, we can't go to bed, tied. I would be like, please go to bed. <laughs> Just <laughs> and I'd throw the ball one more time, one more time. I was always permanent QB, and the boys would play against each other in our backyard. By the way, it's the same backyard that we still live in, and I'll talk about that in just a second. There's a tree now in our backyard that's full grown. It's a huge maple that's probably 60 feet tall. At the time, it was maybe only 20 feet tall. <laughs> 
they would catch a pass over their shoulders and the trees right in the middle of the yard. And if they didn't judge it just right, they'd whack into that tree and knock themselves down. <laughs> the tree was like the defensive back on the other side of the field. And today, when we step out in the backyard, we still talk about that tree. And I would play and I would play till my arm was falling off. I'm not sure. I can't prove it. I don't know exactly, but somewhere in all of that configuration of just being present are five children who love Jesus today. What would you trade for that? Would you give one more afternoon? Would you throw the ball one more time? You're like, that doesn't make it happen. What does? Tell me what does. It is those things that make it happen. It's being present and it's being there and it's choosing this is what matters and I'm going to live this out in front of you. The third one goes right into that one. The way of a godly man is to have fewer regrets, to make better decisions and to live with fewer regrets. After you write down the word regrets, look up at me because I've got something to say that I want you to hear. Here's the thing about a regret. A regret never comes with a warning that says this is going to be a regret. It has no flashing yellow light. There's no siren. Nothing ever tells us this is going to be a regret. A regret is something that years later you realize, I regret that. And the worst thing about a regret is you can live a life that goes the opposite way, but you can't go back and erase a regret, can you? That's why they call it a regret. You can't do it over. You can do it different. You can't do it over. And what would you do to not have regrets in your life? The problem with a regret is that you just don't know in that moment that it's a regret. Let me tell you how a regret happens. A regret is the thing that seems easiest to do in the moment, but costs you the most later. It's the thing that's so easy to say to the one that you love that stops them from trying to draw from you, but you regret it later. It's the one that in the moment you say yes to outside of your family that pulls your attention and pulls your affection and pulls your time. And it seems easy at that moment, but later you regret it. They never come with warning lights. They never come with flashing sirens. They're just things that all of us have regret, yes or no. We all do. But how do you, as a godly man and a godly father, make better decisions and live with fewer regrets? I want to say something to men real quickly. I don't find the time in many messages and sermons to hit on some of the things that I feel in my heart about particular subjects, but let me just say it right now. So often when men are talked about today, they use the word narcissist with men. A narcissist is a person that just lives for them and them alone, and the worst thing about a narcissist is they don't know that it's about them. They think this is how the world goes, and everything's about them. And then we disguise our narcissism in like, hey, I'm doing this for my family. I have to be gone all the time and I'm pursuing the one that is giving me all the attention and wants me and I'm leaving you behind and eventually I'll come back to you. But in the meantime, I'm doing this to support us. And in reality, you're a narcissist. It's about you and what you get and how it makes you feel. Now, so that you understand, the highest thing that you can do for your family, support them. Go to work. Do good. But there's a line that you draw. Where you have to say, hey, 
I'm doing this for them, not just for what I get out of it and not just for the accolades that it brings me because that thing will cost you more and more and more as you go down the road. For me, not for you, for me. I recognized early on in my life that God had given me a gift that when I stand in front of people, I can reach out and I can get them. I can pull them close and I can speak to their soul. And it served me well through the years. And when it's used for God, it's powerful. But when it's used for me, it can be a negative. Look at me real quick and listen to me. Early on in my life, man, I used to get invitations to speak at churches and conferences And I would say yes to those things. And the best part about it was the honorariums that came with it because it supplemented my income, which in the ministry, listen, you don't make hundreds and thousands of dollars. And supplementing my income was important to me because it did something for my family. But I would be gone three days and four days, and then I'd get back and have to catch up and stay at the office and teach over the weekend, and then I'd leave again on a Monday. And I tell myself, I'm bringing the gospel to people that I'll otherwise never be able to reach. And it's doing something good for my family. But it was costing my family my presence in their lives. And I had to make a decision. And the decision was, what kind of a father and a dad and a husband do I want to be? And I might have to be one that's a little bit poorer. One that, listen, has lived in the same house for 20 years now. Because it's the house I could afford. There's nothing wrong with buying a new house, and good for you if you did it. But if it cost you your family to do it, you made one of the worst mistakes you'll ever make because that house will taste like crud if your children go the opposite direction. You're quiet. You okay? I had to make a decision a long, long time ago that today I live with this. I'll only go out three times a year and teach someplace else. I went last weekend to a church that I usually say yes to once a year. They treat me really good. They make me feel like a million bucks, and they pay me well. (laughs) But I'll only do it three times a year because my priority is to be here, and my priority is still with this one right here. Now, you know where we're at now? She can go with me. So she went with me, and we had a great time at a hotel last weekend. But... But, (laughs) forsaking narcissism is a thing that all men will contend with. So, hey, is this just your opinion and your thought, Pastor? Or is there something that you've pulled from the spiritual foundation in your life? Jesus taught this, and I just happened to catch it early on. There's no greater love than this, to lay down one's life for who? One's friends. Maybe you heard it as, there's, great, great, there's no greater love than this, that one would lay down his life for another. But the point is still the same. It's Jesus teaching that we don't live our lives for ourselves. The highest level that you can live your life for is for other people, yes or no. And when you ask who those people are, look at me. It's real easy. If you're married, you live it for that woman. And if you have children, you live it for those kids. And it's so easy to think I'm doing something for others and you're ignoring the ones that God gave you. For me, for me, God told me this a long time ago. (laughs) If you don't take care of your bride, why should I let you take care of mine? 
When I pray for God to bless her, what do you think the number one way God wants to bless her? It's through me, yes or no? It's not coming through somebody else or through the mail. It's coming through me to her. That's my highest level of living life. And when I look around the room, I see some men shake their hands and I see others look away. I don't mean to slap you around. I don't mean to talk down to you. I admire you. I respect you. I honor you. But I'm also called to this higher level to say it's not okay to get to the end of your life and look and be lied to. Now's the time to ask, am I on the road I'm supposed to be? Am I on the path that God wants me? Is it going the direction that I want? And change doesn't happen in a day. It happens daily. What could you do today to change it? Could you make a decision to be present? Could you say the words that your family longs to hear? Can you choose to be authentic? To tell them, I don't know how to lead spiritually, but I want to. That I need to learn. That I'm not sure what this prayer is going to sound like, but this is what a leader does. Could something happen right now in this moment that you make another decision so that you have fewer regrets five years from now? Ten years from now? Life is not that big thing that happens at the end of it. It's all the little decisions every day. Maybe it's as simple as watching your girl dance this afternoon. If I could go back for one more dance. Jesus, I love you. And I thank you for the opportunity to teach your people. And I hope I've loved your bride well today. God, I want you to be proud of me. Father, for every father, for every man, I know there are some in this room who are going to feel like they failed. Guys, we're good at that, aren't we? To feel like we're not measuring up, like I'll just try to work harder, or to be at a place in life where we just give up. And that's not what this is today. I don't want to bring you to a place where you feel frustrated. I want to bring you to a place where you can go, God, help me. God, help me. For the men and the fathers in this room who look and go, yep, I get it, John. I'm with you. Maybe you're in that long season right now where it just feels hard to do the things that I'm saying. I get that. I'm not putting up a false front. I know it's a long season at times and you just feel like, ah, it's never going to end and I doubt it'll ever pay off. But believe it or not, you will blink your eyes and you will look back and someday you will say, I wish I could go back for one more. One more. Today's the day you make that decision. Maybe it really is at the level of you're able to choose. What you'll do from this moment out. Look, it's a high thing, a worthy thing, a lofty thing, a good thing to take care of your family, to work hard. But that thing can turn into, <laughs> into a thing that's just about you. And you give the best part of yourself to something that won't even be there in 20 years. 
and the leftovers to the most important thing in life. Maybe today's a day you can make a decision that the best part goes to the most important things. It really will not be a big thing on a big day. It's the little decisions that equal a big thing. How you doing? How you doing? We all want to know we lived a good life and we all want to know that we're good men and good fathers. How you doing? If there's changes that need to happen, tell God help me. And if you feel good about what you're doing, then ask God to strengthen you. And last but not least, if you're at the end of your journey, have you ever considered how you help younger men and fathers get to the end okay? Maybe God has something for you that brings a context to why you did what you did. Maybe you have resource, time, talent, treasure to invest in younger fathers. Whatever God would say, it's the greatest thing in the world when we're obedient. Let the Lord lead you in this right here. We have one final song that Donnie will sing. It's sort of a, uh, a pulling together of this day. It's really short, and then we'll get you out of here into Father's Day, the U.S. Open, I know. <laughs> but just for the next two or three minutes, let this be the solidifying time of the message. Stand to your feet, if you will. talking last night, we had a, another song planned, but we felt like it just didn't really mesh with the message. And so we were like, how do you tie in this idea of living a good life and being a godly man and being a godly person to worship? And, and I think when we look at the perfect example of a good father and we learn to worship him and give him all the glory in everything that we do, that everything else just kind of lines up. So we're gonna sing Worthy of It All again. I just wanna encourage you, let's just press in and just give him all the glory for our families, for our entire lives, everything that we have. You are worthy of it all. You are worthy of it all. For from you are all things, to you are all things, you deserve the glory, you are
of your love. Help us to love like you. You're such a perfect father. We love you and we thank you that we have the best example to go after. So lead us. 